Indeed, the one that everybody ought to know, of the one that everyone should speak and tell. That kind of song, as well as the others in which we've participated, have been encouraging and uplifting to each of us to think about the blessedness of the gospel and the powerful privilege it's ours to be members simply of the body of Christ. It is indeed a privilege we've each been given to assemble today, and as was mentioned earlier, some who've been sick are able to be back with us. Others, of course, still are battling health issues and problems, and our minds, thoughts still rush to all of them, hopeful soon that matters will be better with them. But today, as we, in fact, extend and carry forth the exercises of worship and the desire that's in our heart to do so always in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24, I would ask that we consider a third lesson in our series of lessons on the glory in the church. That text of Ephesians 3, 21 that we have used so far throughout the series to remind us, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Perhaps words will fail you and me to fully express the gratefulness that should be ours in regards to the establishment of the church, the single greatest institution by far on the surface of the earth. And yet, we have the privilege. God doesn't force anyone to be a part of it, but the opportunity is ours. And thanks be unto Him that we have that opportunity today. You'll notice that by way of quick reminder to some of that which we've learned so far in the series, we first of all began by expressing the thought of what that glory entails, the sadness that surrounds the common view that some have that the church is obsolete, that it's immaterial or irrelevant, that it is unnecessary. And yet the Bible lifts that precious body to the highest echelon of existence. And may we never forsake its beauty and the power that's in it. You'll also notice in the series, two weeks ago we learned that some of the special things about the church are these. It can be identified. The Lord only built one. One body, one Lord one spirit. Just as surely as there is thus one body, we learn one of the characteristics surrounding it was its date. Any religious organization that cannot trace its origin to that first Pentecost following the resurrection of our Savior, it cannot be the church. And any organization that cannot trace its origin to the city of Jerusalem on that occasion also is not the church. Those are two very clear identifying characteristics. One more that we've learned is the relationship that that church bears to Jesus. He is its head, He is its builder, He is its foundation. And any religious organization that doesn't proclaim Him as all three is in fact also by its very nature not the body for which He shed His blood and the body which is in fact is that precious church. Well that said, why don't we push forward and look at some other identifying characteristics today things that you and I can use to help us appreciate in clearness and in clarity the matters surrounding the church. I would submit that today we consider one that perhaps might not occur to many people, but yet it's one that is addressed in the Holy Scriptures and therefore it's one that's worthy of our attention. It is the issue surrounding the matter of the name. Over the next few moments this morning, let us turn our attention to what the Scripture says about the name from two vantage points. First of all, does the Bible say anything either directly or indirectly about the name that would be acceptable 
for a body of believers to wear. Secondly, does the Bible say anything, either directly or indirectly, about the name that an individual ought to wear in order to properly ascribe the glory and honor to God as His faithful child? And thus, we have two matters to consider. Let's take the first one that I mentioned at the outset. As you can see on this particular slide, the Bible has much to say in significance about the matter of the name. First of all, you can see well over 1,100 times in the King James Bible, some reference or usage of the word name appears. That alone, of course, is significant. But notice that on a number of occasions, God took the liberty of changing the name of a particular person in light of a new era or arena in life that that person was shortly to enter. We recall, for instance, in Genesis 17, God changed Abram's name to Abraham, and He changed Sarai's name to Sarah, and it was by those names that you and I typically now recognize and know them, because Abraham and Sarah were to at that point become the recognized ones who shortly would give birth, of course, to Isaac, that one who was of the son of promise. You might remember that later, the grandson whose name was Jacob, it was changed to Israel. That was recognizing of the fact that he wrestled with God, had power with God, and as such he occupied a very powerful role in the history of the Messianic nation. Even beyond that, you can notice in the New Testament, yet other examples are provided. In Acts chapter 13, that one who formerly had been known as Saul, who so vehemently persecuted the church, he was now called Paul from that time forward. We remember that Jesus, as He made reference to that son of Simon, that son of Jonah rather, that individual you and I so often know as Peter, it was our Savior who on that occasion recognized that name as opposed to others that He also had been called. Maybe those are enough examples to help us appreciate the fact that name seems to be an important issue with God. Did He not also command that His name was never to be taken lightly, never to be used in a vainglorious way? Exodus 20 verse 7. Perhaps that alone reminds us that what we learn today concerning the name of the church is a matter of great significance. And sadly enough, so many times it would seem the world has a less than noteworthy appreciation for it. May we begin in the following way. That word that so often appears in the New Testament as the translated word church, it actually comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. That may seem like an unusual word. It's really a compound term. It is composed of a prefix, ek, which means out of, and then the noun form, klesis, which means a calling. And thus to comprise or put those together. This word, ekklesia, describes a group that's been called out of something into something else. As we understand Jesus and the other inspired writers of the New Testament, they especially employed that term as descriptive of those who had been brought out of the world, a relationship, if you please, with the devil, into a covenant relationship with God, and as such they occupied a very special organization. They were called out of one arena into another one the church. 
that beautiful word ecclesia is thus descriptive of the presentation of all of those churches you and I read of within the pages of the New Testament. As we give thought to what, where that next leads us, how were those congregations identified, or at least how were they named and called? May I submit to you that it seems as if there were two descriptives provided with respect to those New Testament congregations. As you can see there near the top of that slide, one of the particulars seemed to refer to the location where that particular congregation was located. And you and I are aware of many New Testament examples. There was the church at Jerusalem. There was the church at Antioch. There was the church in Corinth. The church at Philippi. The church in a number of other locations. Perhaps the book of Revelation highlights seven churches in Asia. Those being Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamos and Thyatira, Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Congregations existent in many different localities. But that isn't all that one sees with respect to those descriptive names. You also can see with me that there was a word descriptive of a means of identifying the body. What kind of body was it? It wasn't just any arbitrary assembly. As we give thought to how that was used, we're going to begin asking questions later in the lesson about this application to today. But maybe in fairness at this point, may we give thought to some principles that might be very useful to keep in mind. Aside from that name descriptive of where a particular congregation meets, what should be said about the other descriptive that is used? Maybe these are some principles and guidelines that we ought never forget. As far back in the Old Testament, we notice in Psalm 20, verses 5 and 7, as well as Psalm 44, 8, the fact that the name of God and what He has authorized by virtue of that name should stand exaltedly high. And it is that name on which we base our salvation. It is that name on which we base the means of authorization of what we do and why. Even David, the ancient psalmist, appreciated the need for that matter of accordance and emphasis on the name. Perhaps no one, though, stated it any more clearly than did the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. If we give some reflective thought to that passage... May we ask again what that encompasses. Whatsoever you do in word or deed. So that governs what we say, certainly the name by which one calls oneself, the name by which one calls one's organization, the actions that organization does. He says all of it must serve beneath the comforting umbrella of the authorization of the God of heaven and the name of His Son. Surely then in light of a passage like that one, it encourages us to think very clearly about the name. Here at the bottom, you'll notice that we learned last week something very vital. When it comes to the church, all that it ever was and all that it currently is and all that it ever shall be must fall, of course, beneath the reality of the Christ. For He built it, He founded it, He is its head, He is its foundation. Did He not Himself say in Colossians 2, 3, You are complete in Christ. 
He is, in fact, all that we ever have any hope of being anything meaningful before God. Does it not then follow that one would naturally expect that since the church belongs to Him, it's His, that the name should reflect that fact? The name should honor Him in some way? In light of that, let us ask about the application of some of those principles, using first what the Bible has to say about it. There are several New Testament descriptives of those congregations that you and I mentioned earlier. Let's in fact review them. In Romans 16, 16, we have that lovely anthem, The Churches of Christ Salute You. And thus we learn it is perfectly scriptural for a body of believers to call themselves by the name Church of Christ. That name is found in Scripture. It honors Christ because it's the church. The word of is a preposition and hence it belongs to the Christ. She is His. He is the foundation. He's the leader His head. That name perfectly is in accord with that principle we've just learned in Colossians 3.17. However, there are other descriptives that one also finds. In Acts 8 verse 3, there it simply is called the church. Now we notice that as one gives thought to it, the context informs us about where that church was located. But in terms of the description, only the word church appears. That thus would be a scriptural way to refer to a particular congregation if they chose to refer to themselves that way. Beyond that, the Corinthian congregation is called the church of God in 1 Corinthians 1 verse, verse number 2. In fact, that same description occurs in, 1, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as well. We see then that this is a church, that is a group of people called out that belong to God. Beyond that, we notice in Hebrews 12, 23, the church of the firstborn. Finally, the last one I'd mention, 1 Timothy 3, 15, the church of the living God. Perhaps we can already gain the sense that it's not as if God had but one specified name that could be used, but that which was most important was that that name honor the Christ in some way, and furthermore, that it be a legitimate and scriptural way of referring to that given organization. It is with that in mind, I would point out something that seems intensely interesting to me. We might ask, does the word Christian ever used in the New Testament as a reference to the body at large? We understand that that word Christian is used, but may we quickly note it is never employed in the pages of God's New Testament to refer to the body of believers at large. The word is never employed that way. It's never utilized in that fashion. That would seem, of course, to suggest that we ought to think twice and, in fact, ought not to so call ourselves that way today. We will find later in the lesson, though, how that word must be used. It is with those in mind that I would ask you to give some thought to some particular groups of people and the names that are used to describe them by their own choosing and by their own selection. I have chosen just a few, but I think the principle will be clear. If you drive into Gainsborough, you will have no trouble finding the Gainsborough First United Methodist Church. 
the building where those individuals meet question is we make use of the principle that we've learned today. Where is the name of Christ anywhere in that name? Where is the reference to God anywhere in it? I see Gainsborough that tells us where this group of people meet. We're easily able to see First United Methodist. Now that takes us back to the days of John Wesley and the methodical way that he taught to do things. And so we see emphasis on the word method, but I see no reference to Jesus, God, anything in terms of those names we've learned. Now we do see the closing word, the word church, but isn't it interesting that there seems to be no reference at all in light of the principle we've learned to some of the things we might have expected. Perhaps another example. When I was in Kentucky working, no difficulty in locating just off the square in Columbia, Kentucky, the Columbia Baptist Church. Let's apply the same principle. We know that the congregation meets in Columbia, Kentucky, for the first word in the name suggests so. But the next word is the word Baptist. We might ask the question, what does that emphasize or what thought goes along with that name? The idea relates to baptism, and oddly enough, they don't think you have to be baptized to be saved. I don't know that I'll ever fully understand that. But nonetheless, the word Baptist is used as a part of the descriptive name. Christ's name isn't there. God's name isn't there. Perhaps a third example. You'll notice this when I chose from Cookville the Cookville First Presbyterian Church. We find in that name, again, the location as to where the congregation meets. And we also find, of course, by virtue of name, First Presbyterian, hearkening us to the days of John Calvin and the thought of the presbyters and the work that they do in the church. But friends, those are men who serve as presbyters. They're not the Christ and they're certainly not God. We might again ask the question, in light of Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Maybe one final example. Also taken from Cookfield, St. Michael's Episcopal Church. We see in that again a number of things that are interesting. St. Michael was a rather famous Catholic antique priest and thus we see a name that honors Him. We notice the word Episcopal that takes us back to the days of the Church of England when in the days of King Henry it split from the Catholic Church. That might be an interesting history lesson. But where's the authorization and the honor for Christ in that name or any of the others that I've just listed? It's not our desire, of course, to belittle or insult. Our question is just to honestly ask, is God's name or the name of Christ being exalted or magnified by those choices of names? As you can see at the bottom, it would seem to me overwhelmingly that these would have to be cataloged as unacceptable for they don't meet the qualification of Colossians 3 verse 17. They honor a method or a man or an action, but not the Christ as founder, as builder, as head. Isn't it interesting in light of all of them? that surely then if a person were desirous of finding an organization that is the church, the one that Christ built, he should look for one that wears a scriptural name, one that has a name given by decree of heaven within the pages of the New Testament. 
And as we noted earlier, that list is rather short. One can't just start a congregation, call it anything you like, and let it glorify God. It doesn't work that way. The churches of Christ salute you, hearkening us again to the privilege that's ours of being a part of a body whose name is found in the pages of the book of God. Having talked for a few moments about the name for the body, what about the name for the individual? That is to say, those who are members of a particular body, are they also to wear a particular name or does it matter what they are called? I think as you can see upon this particular slide, our question now will revolve again about what does the Bible say? It's not our interest to force our thinking or to insert our opinion or our speculation anywhere. We've just learned that the church at large has a name. What about individuals? May you and I call ourselves anything that we so choose. Frankly, there are several descriptives that are found in the Bible. They're called disciples on some occasions. They're called saints on other occasions. And all of them have a particular role to play in describing that aspect of the life. But in terms of that descriptive name, there seems to be but one. It is thus exceedingly vital that we know what that name is and how it is to be used. In order to fully put forth the story, we must start in the Old Testament. Let's piece all of this together in the following way. In Isaiah 62, verse number 2, not far from the close of that book of Isaiah, we find the God of heaven ushering forth a dramatic and powerful promise. It's a promise that goes somewhat like this. When the Gentiles shall receive my righteousness, then... I will call by them a new name. And I've even highlighted in, in italics as well as in quotation marks some of the explicit occurrences out of that passage. First, when the Gentiles see thy righteousness called by a new name, and it's not an arbitrary one, the Lord shall name it. When Isaiah penned that, roughly seven and a half centuries prior to the birth of Jesus. We easily appreciate that this was long before Jesus was ever born, long before the church was ever established, long before the days of the apostles. But yet, down the stream of time, God said, there's coming a day when this people who currently are not my people, the Gentiles, they will receive my righteousness. When that time comes... I will call them, as well as all those believers, by a new name. It'll be a name not used prior to that time. It'll be a name that had not occurred to the human family to use earlier than it. It was really to be new. At this point, you and I are then in an interesting position. We probably would start reading in Isaiah chapter 63, and we would look for that time when a new name was given. Because whenever we find it, that's the name apparently by which God has given His stamp of approval that those who are His would in fact be called. As you look at some of the next matters, we would read through the rest of the Old Testament and we would find no reference to the events of that name being given. We would start reading then in the book of Matthew in the New Testament and read the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not one reference to God giving a new name would we find. We would turn the page to the book of Acts. 
As we would read through Acts, we would find something momentous that would take place. The church would be established. At this point, no doubt our attention would be heightened and our expectation would reach a crescendo zenith. We would find the Jews ushered into this church. But notice he said Gentiles. So we would read further. Chapter by chapter, we would arrive at chapter 10. And now we encounter a this gentleman named Cornelius, a Gentile. Peter would be told to preach to him, and he did. Not only to him, but to his household. And we suddenly find in chapter 11, verse 18, the Gentiles had received his righteousness. Peter said so. And he was the one there doing the preaching. They received the righteousness and in fact were given access to life abundantly. Eight verses later, eight verses later, God kept His promise. He gave a new name. Eight verses later, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. We have here God exactly keeping His word. He had prophesied that a new name would be given in Isaiah 62 too, and He even gave us when that name would be given, when the Gentiles received His righteousness. In the New Testament, when that reference is found in Acts eleven eighteen, sure enough, eight verses later, we find the new name was provided. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, and there we find the name. It is that name by which individual Christians thus ought to be called. As you give thought to what that means and its application... It's significant that that word occurs three times in the New Testament and there's the first one. We emphasized earlier that it was to be a new name. Never before had it been used in the Old Testament. Never before even in the gospel accounts was it written, but now it's provided. That new name, inasmuch as the word Christian there appears, think with me about the three occurrences and how lofty they are. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, Acts eleven twenty six. That name was not an insulting name or a divisive or derisive name. It was a name that attached them to Jesus. Christ is the first six letters of the word Christian. To be called a Christian identifies one with Christ. It associates one with Him and affirms His unique covenant relationship with the Savior. We next might be interested in the later occurrence. When Paul preached before Agrippa in Acts 26, it was Agrippa, not Paul, who said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. No doubt Agrippa had been aware of that name. He'd heard it used and he knew what it meant. It identified a person with this sect of which Paul was a member and how proudly Paul wore that name. Agrippa knew that thus... He also was being persuaded to be the same thing. There was a unity and a harmony with regard to that name, Christian. Peter used it one last time in 1 Peter 4, 16. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. We are indeed called by God to glorify Him through that name. Perhaps another question. I've listed some other names, and again, I've just chosen some. In light of our study concerning the name Christian, the uniqueness, the glory, the harmony, and the privilege that associates to it, 
Isn't it interesting that it still says the disciples were called Christians. They weren't called Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Anglicans, Witnesses, or any other name that you might want to choose. The God of heaven picked the name. He gave it. I would submit it is an affront to His holiness and a blasphemy toward His name to call oneself by any other name than the one He has given. And that should ring so powerfully in our thinking as we're interested in having a thus saith the Lord for all that we do and say. It is He who has given the name. Do you suppose He would be happy if we choose a different name? If we call ourselves by some different appellation? Perhaps even further than that, we mentioned earlier the unity and the harmony that associates to that name even as Agrippa used it. It is that in that way that Paul employed it as well. Didn't he say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you're baptized into one body? And as such, you are in a membership with body in which there is but one judgment and there is but one appreciation of the nature that you are. In giving thought to all of those matters, let's in fact make one final conclusion, one final assertion at least. As we began the lesson, we made note of the significance of the word name, and we also gave some thought to the beauty that attaches and the importance that goes with it. I would submit that at least it seems usual that most people recognize that fact when it comes to a family. For example, think about the name that a husband and a wife choose to use. It is a blessed occasion, isn't it? On that day when that marriage is consummated and that woman takes the name of her husband. It was a proud day when Denise took my name. It still is a day that's a very cherished one to me. When she took my name as the husband and she is my wife. As we understand the New Testament, Jesus is spoken of as the bridegroom. In passages such as Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, in passages such as 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 3, in passages such as Revelation 19, verses 4 through 8, He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Question, ought not we to take His name as Christians? Christ is not Catholic. The word Catholic cannot be made out of the letters of the word Christ. Neither can the word Baptist or Methodist. It is not our intention to be unkind. But brethren, where is the authorization for any of these other names? God, by the power and majesty of His will, determined the name and when it was given. And as such, ought not we to simply wear that name, for it's the only authorized one. And might we also notice that the Scriptures make no reference to hyphenated names either. There's no reference to a Baptist slash Christian, Methodist slash Christian, Anglican slash Christian. It simply is Christian, isn't it? And thanks be unto God for the simplicity of that name and for all the wonder that goes with it. As we've given some thought this morning to name from two perspectives... Let's use just a moment to summarize some of that which we have seen. First of all, in light of the name, we've found that it fits naturally into these other descriptives concerning the identifying marks of the body of Christ. 
just as surely as one can identify the church by noting it was founded at a specific time and place, it has a specific relationship to Jesus, but it also wears a particularly specific name. If you and I thus are interested in being a part of that body, we must find one that meets all of those characteristics. If it's missing any one of them, it cannot be the church of our Lord. Thankfully, we appreciate the glory associated to that church, and it takes us back to the passage with which we began. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Until the end of time, these names we've learned today shall stand. And anywhere in any place that individuals wish to be a part of that body recognized by God as that belonging to His Son, they will wear these names that God has given. Individually, it must be Christian only. In terms of that congregation, to pick a name found in the pages of the New Testament, Churches of Christ, of course, fits the bill beautifully. But to make sure even more so than that, even with a selected name, found in the Bible, that what goes on inside, that what they teach and what they practice and how they worship must meet the fullness of the will of Christ. Again, honoring Him as head and His will as supreme. This very morning, if there might be one or more in the audience who has not yet become a Christian, even though you know what the plan of salvation is and even though you know Jesus died for you, and that currently you're in a state that's lost. Why not make that matter wholly different today? You'll be a changed person. You'll be more than just wet. That's just an outside. The blood of Christ will reach far inside to your heart. Your sins will be cleansed. Your life will be completely changed as you're able to stand sanctified, justified, and whole before God. Today, that plan of salvation involves these things. You must hear that precious Word of God. Believe Jesus, in fact, to be the very one whom He claimed to be the Messiah. Upon that belief, repent of those sins in your life, turning aside from those activities, be they word, be they deed, be they thought, to turn to that which is godly and right. Confess the name of Jesus as your Savior, as the Son of God, to be baptized for the remission of sins. All of those things are necessary. If you have at one time become a member of the precious body of Christ, but you've strayed from your faithfulness, you have perhaps removed yourself to a position of shame, you're not happy to show your face because you know what you once were and that you no longer are that way. Is the Lord proud of you at this point? Is He happily able to put His arm around you and say, at this point in life, well done? If He can't do that now, make change today. This 20th day in March, 2011, there will never be a better day than this one for you to come back to the love of your, of your Master and Savior. If we could pray on your behalf today in loving character to the God of heaven that He would forgive you of your sins when you repent and confess them, He has promised to do it. Why not even come forward during as we sing in just a moment this song and let us assist you if in any way we can. If we can in fact be of help to you, why not let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.